you're listening to When We Had Cancer, a podcast where I, Sarah Marion, now 24-year-old, third-year medical student at University of Virginia with interest in storytelling and medicine, sit down with former cancer survivors to listen to their stories since diagnosis. The purpose of these vulnerable conversations is to let survivors know that we are here to listen, and more importantly, that it is safe to share. Perhaps these conversations can make all of us, whether we're healthcare professionals, those in training, or the general public, a little more empathetic to the experiences of others. Perhaps survivors will feel some solidarity from listening, and current patients can find hope in hearing stories of those who have come out the other side. This week, I'm joined by Farah Contractor, another peer of mine at UVA School of Medicine. Farah is a first-year medical student and a two-time cancer survivor. Farah, would you mind introducing yourself? Sure. Um, yeah, like Sarah said, I'm Farah, um, and I did have cancer twice. Um, so I'm also 24 now, and um, back around 12 years ago now, when I was about to turn 13, um, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and then um, I had a secondary cancer from the chemotherapy from that, um, which was secondary acute myeloid leukemia. And yeah, now I'm a first-year medical student at UVA, <laughs> so coming full circle. Yeah, so um, I was just talking to Farah before I started recording, but um, I'm very interested in your story today because, you know, we had Kate, um, another medical student here on the podcast a couple months ago, and her story was kind of a long time ago, right? And so her story was um, more bits and pieces from what she's heard from family and um, the healthcare team. And so with Farah having had um, cancer in her teenage years, um, I think it'll be a very interesting story, a unique one that we haven't heard on this podcast yet. Um, so can you tell me about your first cancer, kind of like how that was, you know, the diagnosis, the story of that, um, and the chemo? Yeah, so that was um, a little rocky getting the diagnosis. I was um, having, like, increasingly bad hip pain in my left hip for, um, I think, about a year, like, when I turned 12 up until I was diagnosed right before my 13th birthday, um, and it was just, like, this pain. It was like a bony pain that was just getting worse. And I would go to my pediatrician and they would kind of laugh it off and be like, oh, it's like growing pains or like a muscle pull or your backpack is too heavy or you're playing too much tennis or whatever. Like no one really suspected anything, but I would go back like month after month and they were like, you know, what are you doing to yourself? They did labs, like a basic CBC, which was normal, except for my, um, like, uh, CR, um, CRP and ESR, they were like elevated. So those are your inflammation markers. But again, nothing really happened. I actually got um, an x-ray done at a community hospital um, around my town. And they said uh, that the x-ray was normal, which I remember being on the table and like listening to the radiologists and the tech talking because I could hear them in the background. And they were like, "What? well, what is that shadow right there? And and then the tech or the radiologist was like, she's a baby. Like, it doesn't matter. She's just a baby. It's probably nothing. Um, and then fast forward about a month later, I went to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and finally got um, the actual diagnosis. They did the same x-ray, which showed, um, you know, something that looked possibly malignant, got an MRI, um, definitely showed something that looked malignant, and then I got a bone marrow biopsy. Um, and it was interesting because I remember um, being sent to like the oncology clinic and looking at the word oncology I had no idea what it meant I was 12 I like didn't yeah I didn't associate it with cancer um but my mom who's a pharmacist like in retrospect like thinking about what she was thinking at that moment um I can't even imagine like she obviously knew what was going on so yeah um and ultimately I was diagnosed with diffuse 
large B-cell lymphoma, which is um, more common in boys than girls, I think. And just, um, it's a very treatable uh, blood cancer, though. So, Got it. Okay, yeah. I definitely want to talk about the second cancer first, but uh-huh. um, I already have so many questions. And I think, <laughs> you know, we, we, you know, we're medical students and we make these differentials, you know, on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. Where basically we have a case um, with a small group and, you know, we have a case of a patient and it's sort of this one-liner they come in for chest pain, they come in with leg pain, they have shortness of breath, whatever. And we kind of always joke, you know, it could always be cancer, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes it's always, you know, sometimes it feels a little bit ridiculous or that, you know, kind of very far left field, that yeah. being on the differential. And so I can imagine if you have a 12-year-old growing, active, whatever, you're not really thinking about cancer. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would love to know what you were thinking about when you were going in, if you were having conversations with your family, were you guys doing research? Um and then can you describe the day, I guess, when you got the diagnosis? Yeah. So two-part question there. Definitely. So um, about the first question, I guess, um, in terms of like what I was thinking and what I thought it was, um, it was really weird because I was having, I had two dreams um, where I was, I had cancer <laughs> in those dreams before I was diagnosed. Um, I think it was a lot of like hypochondria, like just, I was like scared. I didn't know what was going on. And I just knew deep down something was wrong. Um, And also my really good friend uh, from elementary school, her little sister had ALL when we were um, around like 10 years old. So I just remember seeing her sister and like, um, I got her like presents and stuff. And her mom is like closely affiliated with the hospital that I worked in. She, um, so yeah, I I knew someone who had had cancer before. And I think I just popped, it popped into my head when I was um, dreaming, I guess. And I saw myself like, you know, in my middle school wearing a hat because I was bald and it was bizarre. Um, And so I remember because of the hip pain, um, I would wake up like just like an excruciating pain at three in the morning. And um, I would go to my mom and wake her up and be like, what do I do? Like, I can't sleep. So we would go downstairs. She would make me a bowl of cereal and tell me to take Advil um, because and then the cereal was for so my stomach didn't hurt with the Advil. Um, And she... um, yeah, she also, like, didn't really tell me what she thought it was. I don't know what she was thinking, but mm-hmm. I remember asking her during one of these, like, 3 a.m. Um, serial Advil <laughs> um, moments that um, if if I had cancer, like, did she think I had cancer? And she was like, absolutely not. Like, mm-hmm. there's no way. <laughs> like, we're not even, you know, going down that route. Um and then I remember being in the car on the way home from the MRI that I had um, when they suspected that it was cancer. Um, and she was talking to the radiologist or I guess whoever called her after the MRI because it was very quickly after I had the scan that they called back, um, which isn't super common unless something's wrong, obviously. Yeah. And so I just remember her going, no, no, like, okay, we'll be there, but no. (laughs) And then like, obviously afterwards, probably like years later, she told me what the other side of the conversation was and they said that it was probably something, you know, malignant. Um, and she was like in denial. She was like, absolutely yeah. not. Um, so which, yeah. Huh? I was gonna say, which is completely, you know, fair. Oh yeah. Um, no mm-hmm. one wants to obviously think that their daughter has mm-hmm. cancer, especially at age what, twelve? Twelve, yeah. Um, I just wanna say before we move on, and obviously there's so much to talk about here, having the dreams that you had cancer yeah. prior to the diagnosis <laughs> is absolutely incredible. I have like goosebumps thinking about that. Yeah. Um Wow, I just want to just <laughs> kind of like flag that as like, that is so cool. Um, yeah, I actually read that was, I think they did a study. I can't remember like where I read this, but I remember seeing 
women with breast cancer, like they interviewed them and asked them if they had any dreams prior. Um, because I think people were actually interested in this and it's like a phenomenon that happens um, right before you're diagnosed or um, I guess leading up to it. And other people have had similar dreams um, wow. too before their diagnosis. I'm not sure like if it's our body like actually trying to tell us what's wrong or because like we know some, like I guess as a society, like cancer is so prevalent. Um, and it's just like one of those things on our like, um, even like lay people differential, I guess. It's right. like, this could and like WebMD when you're scrolling, <laughs> you know. <laughs> WebMD for sure. Yeah. Um. Okay. So I guess my next question is: so once you got the diagnosis mm-hmm. of um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, what were what did the yeah? So what would that day? I guess yeah. So what was the diagnosis like receiving? Um. And then what did your oncologist kind of tell you? What would be kind of in store for you? Yeah. In the next you know years to come. So I remember um, going through the bone marrow biopsy. I was put under, luckily. I mean, I know a lot of adults, um, you don't get that luxury. So yeah, I was um, out for it. And then I think maybe two days later, oh, also, it was really interesting because I remember right after I woke up and like started walking around, um, the hip pain that I I was having for over a year, it was like, almost gone like it was just like they sucked out all of this really bad bone marrow or something and I felt like um a new person like my hip wasn't hurting anymore um and my parents and I were joking on the way home that yeah they sucked out all the bad stuff um when they did the biopsy but yeah anyway so three days later they called us back in um it was late January and um it was a Friday (laughs) and I so I was not in school um and we were in the oncology clinic at CHOP the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia um they actually were under construction so it looked a little weird but um I remember sitting next to a family and they were like are you guys new here (laughs) and their daughter was there too she looked around my age and they're like yeah we've been here for the long haul um and my mom was just kind of I think she was just trying to like put on blinders or something because she was still in denial um yeah my dad is in tech so he like didn't really everything was kind of over his head as much as it was for me too I think my mom was really the only person who knew what was going on um we went into the exam room um where I Um, saw my doctor. So we were actually referred to this oncologist by a rheumatologist at CHOP that I had seen um, because we thought it was like a rheumatological issue like with my joints or something. So um, we saw rheumatology first, then he referred us to Dr. Bailey, who um, has been my doctor for, yeah, the past 12 years. And I'm still like very close. Like we see each other probably every six months for appointments. But yeah, anyway, he... um, he said, like, pretty much right away, I just remember, like, my feet were dangling off the exam table, and I was kind of, like, kicking back and forth because I was nervous, and I could feel, like, this tension. Uh, my parents, both of them were there, um, and he said that I had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and again, I had no idea what that meant. Like, I didn't even know that was cancer until he said the word cancer and chemo, and then it was like, oh, like, something in my brain clicked, but as soon as he said lymphoma, I looked over at my mom, and she was just like, like had a breakdown she just like was crying um and I'd never seen her cry before she's like very very stoic um I think with like those like softer emotions and stuff my dad's the one who wears his heart on his sleeve and he's you know got no poker face so seeing my mom like having a breakdown over there I was I was like okay this is probably serious Mm -hmm. um and my dad also didn't know how to react to because I don't think he quite knew either but um 
Yeah, I think my, my doctor, I remember him asking me what I knew about chemo. Um, and I was like, not really much. Like, I just know that you lose your hair. And um, he was like, okay, well, that's a good start. And kind of went into like some of the other side effects and like what to expect. And then I was asked to leave um, with a nurse to go to the day hospital and just like wait there um, until my parents were done talking with my doctor. Um, because I think he was getting into like the more nitty gritty and like outcomes and things like that. So gotcha. Um, yeah, I could only imagine how your, you know, your mom, the emotions going through your mom's oh, yeah. head, understanding the mm-hmm. weight of that diagnosis. And I just want to kind of, again, draw another parallel where I think it's kind of fascinating that, you know, I've had um, older women on this podcast talk about their experiences with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, and for them, you know, they've seen people experience breast cancer, you know, they're wise, they've been on this earth for longer. And so they can appreciate, obviously, what breast cancer is, even having no necessarily experience in healthcare. Um, so getting those words, breast cancer, it's immediately all these things going through right. your head yeah. versus, you know, a kid getting diagnosed not just with cancer but you know right non-Hodgkin's lymphoma what is that um which is just such an interesting difference um and I guess having to pick up on the context clues of how your parents are reacting to see kind of like what does that mean Mm -hmm. um I would love I would love if you could to the best of your ability I don't know how I'm assuming you're well versed on it but if you could just for the audience define non-Hodgkin's lymphoma yeah and then also you mentioned you know the bone marrow biopsy and then just kind of briefly describe what um, bone marrow is and sure. you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, so um, I had just taken. Actually, we just finished cells, blood, and cancer, so I should know my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, a, that's our uh, one of the units as a um, first year medical student is cells, mm-hmm. blood, cancer. So that's yeah. of course Farah just finished. <laughs> <laughs> so um, lymphoma in general is a blood cancer. Um, a lot of cancers are. Um, I guess, like tumors, so like solid masses in your body that you would find, like lumps and bumps, um, like breast cancer, for example. But uh, with lymphoma um, and leukemia, they're blood cancers. So um, they're kind of more spread out across your entire body. There's no like central, um, I guess, like place where, you know, all the bad cells are. It's kind of all over in your blood. um, And they're specifically cancer of the white cells. Um, so those are your immune cells and with lymphoma, um, a lot of the time for, I think my presentation was weird because, um, I mean, it is called diffuse large B cell lymphoma, so it is spread out, but a lot of the time there's like a mass that's associated with it. Um, but I didn't have one. I didn't have, I had like maybe some enlarged lymph nodes, but, um, yeah, so basically I had, I was diagnosed with, um, cancer of the white blood cells, specifically lymphocytes, um, which are, um, a subset of white blood cells. And, um, yeah, I, well, they, and they also, I think the terminology in terms of the naming, it doesn't really make sense to me. I think someone named Hodgkin's or something discovered, not ho- or discovered Hodgkin's lymphoma, and then that's its own thing, and all the other lymphomas are considered non-Hodgkin's, um, so mine fell into that category, um. And um, in terms of bone marrow um, and a a bone marrow biopsy, um, so a biopsy is when they take, um, it's a pretty large needle actually, and they just stick it into um, a place where you have a lot of bone marrow. So um, a lot of the time in pediatric patients, they'll go into your hip. um, So the back and the front of your hip bones, um, they'll stick a needle in there and suck out, you know, this like um, weird, like fatty fluid in the middle of your bones, um, that has all of your white cells and, you know, like pretty much every other cell in your body is made in there. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that was perfect. Okay. <laughs> Thank cool. you so much. Hopefully the audience is thanking you too here. Uh-huh. 
Um, okay, so you got this diagnosis. Your mom's emotional. You're picking up that it's kind mm-hmm. of a serious thing. Um, and so what was the – actually, before we even get into, like, the treatments, I would love if you could just paint a picture for me um, and the audience. Like, you were thir- – you're 12 years old at this time. Mm-hmm. Can you just kind of paint a picture of – Farah, 12 years old, what you were doing, what interests you had in school, where were you living, just, you know, because we want a full holistic view of, you know, you're not just your cancer patient, you're you're a person. No, definitely. Um, I mean, I think we can all relate to, like, being 12 and and how, like, full of angst and just confusion um, life is full of already, like, we're, you know, um, it's, yeah, puberty years, not fun (laughs) for anyone, I don't think. Um, And so I think there was just a lot of that happening in my head. I was like, trying to figure myself out, like, um, and who my friends were. And just, you know, a lot of like, those like key aspects um, of your character that you develop at that age. Um, I was like, in the middle of all that and socializing and things like that. So um, I was always like, such a bookworm. I love reading. Um, just, I don't know, anything pretty much. I'll read um, memoirs, fiction, and stuff. So I always had my head in a book. Um, that's pretty much what I was doing at 12 was studying and reading because I, I think I cared a lot about school too. Um, and then after getting the diagnosis, I like knew I wanted to be a pediatric oncologist. I was like, there is nothing else I could see myself doing. This is it. And so I was like, therefore, I have to, you know, really like focus on school because doctors, you know, they're really smart. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and then I um, grew up, so the Children's Hospital, hospital of philadelphia is in philadelphia um like the proper city i grew up about 40 minutes outside of philly um in bucks county which is a little bit north and um i grew up in a very white suburb so i think um i didn't really understand like why i felt like i didn't fit in growing up but um i think now like obviously retrospect um hindsight is 2020 and there just wasn't a lot of like representation a lot of people that looked like me or my family um and so that was like something else I was dealing with internally too was just like where do I fit in um and then getting this diagnosis on top of that and like becoming you know the cancer girl (laughs) it's it was um, a little tricky um and yeah I definitely had a lot to unpack and like parse through there which honestly I don't think I really like reflected or processed um a lot of it until I was like 18 like in my like at the end of college was when I really like sat down with my therapist and like we delved into it all but yeah yeah, so that was what I was doing at 12 really interested in in reading and um yeah I loved my friends obviously too was hanging out with them but yeah then all of a sudden (laughs) the cancer diagnosis and yeah yeah no that I mean I'm just thinking about when I was 12 (laughs) I thought the worst thing in my life was that someone at the eighth grade dance had the same dress as me. You know yeah, what I mean? Exactly. <laughs> it really puts everything in perspective. Yeah. That you really just don't know some of the awful things people are having to deal with. Yeah. Just walking around you. Mm-hmm. Um, but thank you so much for sharing. Um, so, so walk us through kind of how you start to um, treat this lymphoma. Yeah, um, so I can't even remember the exact therapy I got. I do I do remember that it was um, only chemo and that um, a portion of it was this thing called, uh, well, they're a class of drugs called anthracyclines, which are very, um, they're known to be very damaging to your heart if you have them in a certain amount. Um, so there's actually this lifetime cumulative dose that any patient can have um, for an anthracycline. Um, and 
Um, this is kind of like leading into a, one of the complications that I eventually had, not with treatment for lymphoma, but for treatment with um, the leukemia. Um, I ended up uh, getting cardiomyopathy just because I had so many, like so much anthracycline in my therapy. Um, but yeah, it was eight months of chemo. Um, the rounds were pretty, it was like spaced out so that um, one week a month I would be inpatient getting all my chemo. And then um, I would recover at home. I would be neutropenic, which is when your neutrophils, a type of white blood cells, all the way pretty much like non-existent, which really helps you fight bacterial infection. So I had to just stay away from people, be at home, couldn't go to school um, because, yeah, I was very susceptible um, to infection. And, um, yeah, I think uh, that I didn't really have, like, any complications, I don't think, during, like, anything major. Of course, I had, like, the hair loss, the nausea, the vomiting. Um, I had a ton of ulcers from this drug called methotrexate. It causes, like, mouth sores and stuff. So I was on pain meds for that sometimes when they were really bad. Um, and I actually got to do this really cool thing um, in between treatment, um, which was camp. It was the Ronald McDonald camp, and I got to uh, get out of the hospital and get out of my hometown for a little bit to um, go to this camp with cancer patients and their siblings. And a bunch of doctors from my hospital, CHOP, and um, the nurses from CHOP would come with us. So it was, like, very safe. Like, we had um, all this medical care readily available, but it was also, like, camp. And um, it was cool we stayed in the cabin. And, um, yeah, it, I felt like – I actually felt the nature to be, like, very healing also yeah. while I was going through all of that. So It sounds wonderful. Yeah. I'm glad that they have um, that sort of opportunity. No, it's great, yeah. And CHOP, just is to be clear, I don't know if you defined it, but Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Philadelphia, okay, yeah. Cool. CHOP, got Chop. it. Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. Um, also, very, I don't know, I guess, in awe that you can sort of, like, write off the side effects of chemo. I'm, I yeah. couldn't imagine losing my hair in eighth grade, and maybe you were, like, you know, had enough perspective to appreciate that you were trying to treat something that was very serious and, you know, getting your hair losing your hair isn't the worst thing that could happen to you. But um, how did you, do you remember kind of how you dealt with some of these side effects? Um, you know, yeah. did you have conversations with your mom about stuff? Was it hard at school? Anything like that? Um, so I just wasn't in school at all for this, like, I guess, eight-month period that I was being treated. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. yeah. I was I was out of school. Um, I did have this thing. My district had this thing called Homebound, um, where teachers would come uh, once a week to your house um, to teach you for, like, an hour, which was actually kind of nice. Like, it was very, um, like directed towards my learning and like no one else's so I felt like I could get through material I it was also like we were in seventh grade eighth grade so it wasn't you know anything too hard but um yeah so that's how I kept on top of school so I, but I wasn't in school um just because my immune system was very low and the side effects it's an aggressive treatment regimen um for diffuse large b-cell lymphoma it's just like eight months of really intense chemo basically um so you're just not feeling well the whole time mm -hmm. um and I think the reason I say like I kind of minimize those side effects um like the nausea the hair loss and all of that is because like for AML when I had that and the side effects that I had from treatment um with AML it was just like just massively different and like worse <laughs> compared to the nausea and the vomiting and all of that um though I do I remember like absolutely just like hating throwing up and like that feeling of just being sick all the time and I remember losing um I think they only let you lose 10% of your body weight until you have to get a feeding tube and so I remember getting an NG tube which is a nasogastric tube uh, when I was like probably halfway through treatment just because I couldn't keep weight on um and yeah, that's something that um, 
still it interests me a lot the way they frame feeding tubes and stuff it's almost like a punishment for like not keeping your weight on but there are like so many other factors like contributing to weight loss when you have cancer as a kid and like so many of our patients oh so I worked at shop actually and um after uh like when I was in college so um when I say our patients that's what I mean (laughs) I was I was working in the cancer center there and I realized how many patients need feeding tubes and um I just remember feeling like I failed or something because I couldn't like eat enough and keep the weight on as a um as a patient but yeah and I mean that helped me a lot I think gain the weight back but yeah yeah geez I'm just like you know I talk to people thank you so much for sharing Uh I'm so glad that you you know agreed to sit down with me and do this podcast Mm -hmm. and I'm thinking about how I've talked to my about my podcast to different people and people have listened to it and told me their thoughts and a lot of people, unsurprisingly, are like, you know, this is heavy stuff. Like, mm-hmm. it's kind of sad. It's, you know, not something you just want to play on your commute. And obviously, <laughs> hearing your story, I'm, like, thinking about, like, geez, this is. Like, I'm not desensitized. Like, this is intense. Like, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that you had to get an um, NG tube at 12 um, on top of everything else. Mm-hmm. And this was before this. This was your first diagnosis of mm-hmm. cancer. And then we were going to jump into, eventually, your second diagnosis. Yeah. That's so much I literally like just want to take a pause here and just be like (laughs) this is the amount that you've experienced already and now in your med school also like that narrative arc is so beyond phenomenal and I'm so impressed and in awe of you right now thank (laughs) you um and I am so glad that you know you're going to be able to take care of patients because I think you'll have like you know make the biggest impact um, so I just want to say that. Do you, should we jump into the second cancer diagnosis? Yeah, sure. Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Um, I can quickly talk about what led up to it. But um, basically, my so I had a make-a-wish trip. It was really cool. Um, I got to go to Dubai, which I think I was the first person. They told me I was the first person to ask to go there. So, um, And my family friend lived there, which is why I wanted to go. Um, and it was so much fun. They did like they set up this week of like adventures and like we went to water parks and you know um in the desert and everything on a jeep it was it was so much fun and I got to see my really close friend um who I hadn't seen because she moved to Dubai when we were younger and then um yeah so about a week after coming home I just went to my oncologist for a regular physical because it was only I think six months after transplant so I or sorry after treatment um not transplant <laughs> that comes later um and yeah, it was just routine. Um, I was seeing him every month at that point. And yeah, uh, like I said, I was bruising. Um, and then they looked at my CBC, my platelets were really low, they did another CBC just to make sure there wasn't something um, that was messed up with the first one. Same thing, platelets were low. He looked under the microscope with the pathologist um, at my blood and saw those blasts. And um, he told me like right away, uh, we were like, he was like, I'm going to step out. I'm going to go look at this blood. I'm going to come back and tell you guys what's going on. I was there with my mom. And um, he came back and said that, so I see these immature cells on um, the blood smear. Uh, I don't know if he said blood smear, but <laughs> that's just, you know, medical school lingo. And then um, he was telling us, you know, basically what his differential was. He was like, the worst case is this could be um, a secondary cancer. And he's like, I just want to be upfront with you about that. Um, the probably best thing that this could be is aplastic anemia, which is um, this type of uh, autoimmune phenomenon that like kind of destroys your bone marrow. Um, it's not cancer, but it's um, a separate thing that you also need to get treated for and eventually get a bone marrow transplant usually. So, uh, so far, not looking great <laughs> either, either option. Um, 
but we were really hoping it was like some viral thing um, that caused like this aplastic anemia to happen and it would be more straightforward. But I ended up getting a bone marrow biopsy again um, on, I think it was like a Thursday. Uh, it was a Thursday actually. Yeah. The same week. And um, I got pulled out of school and they did the biopsy right in clinic um, in the day hospital. So it was like a procedure room. They like shot me up with some kind of sleeping medication I don't even remember what it was but um they were making jokes about like what they would do like draw things on my face when I was under and everything I remember the doctor who was doing my biopsy I was saying that um, when I was counting down from 10 and then I woke up and um, my doctor was sitting there with my parents and they were just like kind of waiting for me to like be more lucid I guess <laughs> and yeah he explained in front of um, my parents and I my dad was there too at this point and um, yeah, he said that I had a secondary leukemia that was more, most likely caused by the chemotherapy I'd gotten from um, my lymphoma treatment. So, um, yeah, and just like hearing that after I woke up, I was just, I was like, this is so confusing. But um, also in my head, I think I was naive and thinking like, oh, I had done this before, like I can do it again. Like, it's just the same thing. It was not the same thing. Um, it was very different. But um, I remember actually after I woke up to go outside and my one of my favorite nurses, Annie, um, was out there. She actually left CHOP to like move to Florida or something. But um, I remember she she was about to actually leave um, CHOP and um, she like actually like obviously heard about the diagnosis and everything and was like very tearful and like crying and stuff. And I was like, eh, like I don't know. <laughs> Again, like picking up on top yeah. context clues on like, you know, how mm -hmm. severe is it? Like, yeah, but I think um, this like maybe more, um, I don't know, like, yeah, just primal part of me was, like, trying to block it out. I was like, okay, no, this is, it's still fine. Like, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be okay. And, yeah, but I just, I remember seeing her and just, like, very tearful. And I think she was trying not to give too much away, but I think they knew, like, the prognosis was bad because <laughs> okay. it is very bad um, for uh, acute myeloid leukemia, especially when it's secondary in kids. Yeah. So, do you, do you know off the top of your head? Um, so I actually worked with an AML doctor um, for my last two years at CHOP, um, or like my gap years, I guess, before med school. And the um, it's really rare to get a secondary leukemia from treatment. It's like less than 5% of patients usually get it. And so they don't have great data on it, but they know that um, regular AML has like around 50-60% survival in kids. And so um, this one, because it has a lot of weird mutations associated with it, the secondary one, and um, they say it's around 25%, which is uh, much lower. And I think something my doctor tried to convey to my parents um, in the best of his ability to like also like leave some room for hope in there too. Um, but I remember my bone marrow transplant doctor specifically was like very blunt <laughs> about it. And um, around like halfway through treatment when I was like doing really poorly um, and I, I was like recovering, I came back to clinic and stuff and she's like, wow, we're like surprised to see you here, Farah. Honestly, we didn't know if you'd make it to transplant. And hearing that at 14, I was like, what? Like that, I think that was the thing that made me realize like how serious it all was. Yeah, for sure. Um, usually I think prognoses tend to be given in these percentages and it's, and it's representing um, the percent of patients with that disease, you know, or cancer mm -hmm. that survive five years out, yeah. right? So saying the prognosis is 25% for secondary AML and kids is saying that 25% of that patient group survives five years later, right? Mm -hmm. And so that obviously is, I think people can appreciate, is pretty dismal. Yeah. Um, and so what was kind of, how did you, you know, 
cope with it being that, uh, you know, dismal, I guess. Like how did you have different coping mechanisms? Were you just young and pushing through, you know, just banking on the fact that you'd done cancer before or what, mm-hmm. what was kind of going through your mind and stuff? Yeah, I think it was more like the latter of what you said, just like being young and pretty naive too. Cause I don't think I realized how like serious it was until, I mean, there were moments of clarity, I think, um, when I was, like, doing really poorly and I could, like, physically feel myself, like, dying. Like, I just, like, I felt like I wasn't, like, like nothing was working in my body. Like, I don't know really how to describe it, but there's just, like, I don't know, there was, like, a feeling and I just knew that um, something, like, really bad was happening. Um, And... Yeah, it wasn't because anyone explicitly told me, like, what the prognosis was, like, that percentage. I didn't hear it until, I think, like, after the fact, or maybe I even Googled it on my own. Um, And, yeah, it was mostly just – so, yeah, I guess this kind of brings us into treatment, like, because treatment was so brutal and I was, like, getting such intense chemo, I was also getting, like, a ton of pain meds and anti-nausea meds that would make everything, like, super foggy and hazy, and I think I was mostly just sleeping, like, a lot of the time during treatment, I don't think there was like much room to even cope because, um, except in those periods of like clarity and like lucidity when I would, um, kind of realize like everything was happening. Um, but a lot of the time, like I turned that dial down. So like, I just kind of was like sleeping, focusing on like exactly what was in front of me and nothing else. And I think my mom, um, helped a lot with that too. And really just did all of the, um, like big picture stuff for me while I was, you know, very focused on like the immediate. Yeah. And that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I'm glad to, you know, (laughs) know that you, I mean, obviously audience, if you know, Farrah's here talking with me, she made it. She, (laughs) um, I know that it can be, what's the word? Like it's saying battling cancer is controversial. Yeah. I'm not a huge fan of like the war. um, Right. (laughs) I'm I'm not a fan of it either. Not not obviously a survivor, but not sure what good word to use. We've taken that out, but I don't know what the replacement is, but I'm very glad to see that you, this treatment was successful. Yeah. Um, and so you've mentioned a couple of times that you worked at the same hospital that you were treated at. Mm -hmm. And obviously now you're in med school and you're plan as of right now at least is to become a pediatric oncologist Mm -hmm. can you tell us what it has meant and will mean to you to be have you know given back and worked with the same patients that you were once um and thinking about what it'll be like as a career yeah I mean it's just I still don't know if I fully wrap my head around it because it's all just so um it it seems fresh even though it's like only been I mean it has been like 12 years, it it all seems fresh um, sometimes. And so, yeah, thinking about it sometimes, even when I look in the mirror, I have like this weird like sort of dysmorphia where like I don't really know like if I'm looking at myself now or like I'm looking at, you know, like when I was a patient and stuff, it's kind of like this weird um, thing that that goes on in my mind. Um, And yeah, I mean, it obviously just means the world. Like I can't even describe how grateful I am to like have come from that to you know be on the other side of it and be able to like pass on whatever like empathy and and just like support I can to um patients like me and their families um while also helping helping treat them and yeah it's it's just incredible it's like beyond words I don't yeah (laughs) yeah one thing you mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier was like kind of years later, you unpack stuff in therapy, which I think is, I love that you said that. I love that you mentioned that. (laughs) I don't think we've talked enough about mental health in this podcast yet. Um, And there's clearly an intersection between cancer, 
Um, oh, yeah. You know, cancer survivorship, cancer patients, and mental health. And so I would love if you could speak to um, being in therapy. I don't know if you still are, but yeah. even if you were just in the past, like how mm-hmm. that helped you, um, I guess, cope and, and kind of figure out yeah. your feelings about everything. So for me, I think the hardest part of cancer in general was like the mental health aspect of it. And um, I... Um, Yeah, I had, like, some pretty severe complications from AML, the therapy. I actually had a really, like, horrible case of shingles that completely paralyzed, like, my right side of my face. And so, like, a bunch of cranial nerves and also um, went down my GI tract, which it was just, like, an awful time. But basically, I had never, like, I think the way that um, cancer and treatment was framed to me as a patient going in was... Like, okay, you have to, like, adapt to this new normal and everything. That's, like, such a cliche, like, the new normal. But then, like, you'll get back to your baseline. Um, For me, that was just not possible. And for so many of my friends and, like, other patients, I know, like, they're getting back to your old baseline is just not even an option um, because it doesn't exist anymore. And so I think that was something I really um, had trouble dealing with, like, in high school and, like, in recovery. Um, And I wish there was someone – I know there's, like, just so much info to take in when you're going through treatment and everything and so much is happening but I wish someone sat down and you know told me that it would be okay like even if I couldn't get back there and that some of these things are going to be permanent but that's still okay and like you know you're going to have support and be able to cope with it um but I wasn't really told that (laughs) until I figured it out kind of later um for myself and um yeah I and I I think just being um, really like bitter about how I had a lot of these like chronic things I, I have to deal with. Like, for example, now my, um, immune system is, uh, it never fully recovered. So my B cells are kind of like still immature. I can't make antibodies. So I give myself an infusion every week, um, of immunoglobulin, which has antibodies in it. And that's how, um, I get my antibodies, but that's just like, you know, one thing, um, that became a chronic thing for me. And so, dealing with that in therapy, um, has been like just so, so, so helpful. Um, my therapist, uh, specializes in existentialism, which I have a lot of, she actually has a (laughs) master's in it, which I didn't even know you could get. Um, but yeah, so we talk a lot about, um, like, I think for me, it's really important to like try to make meaning as much as possible of like everything, all the trauma and everything. Like I just want there to be meaning behind it. And I think that's the way for me to, um, kind of, not move on, but just, like, cope with it, and so we've been working on, like, finding meaning in everything, um, and that's, that's really helped immensely, like, through, um, just, you know, regular talking about it, like, psychotherapy, um, and, like, this thing called EMDR, which is, like, a almost, like, hypnosis experimental therapy, where you just, like, kind of dive back into your traumas, and, um, try to really understand, like, you know, what was happening, and, yeah, um, so that that has been just enormously helpful. Like, I wish I had mental health support while I was going through treatment, but I didn't really get, like, I think psychology and, like, behavioral health weren't a huge thing, even, like, 10 years ago. Like, it wasn't something that we, like, openly talked about. Even in, like, pediatric patients and stuff, I was never, like, referred to a psychologist because of my cancer, and I should have been. <laughs> yeah. And um, I really had no one to talk to about it until, like, very recently when I got a therapist on my own, so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, I know, we, we love therapy <laughs> in <laughs> this do. room. It's kind of the takeaway from that, but yeah. that's, um, I love that it's been, you know, really helpful for you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so interesting that, you know, your therapist and 
specializes in existentialism. Yeah. That's very funny and, and awesome, it's truly. A perfect match. <laughs> perfect match, exactly. Yeah. Um, I, we're kind of wrapping up on time here, but okay. a few more questions, just mm-hmm. kind of quickly get these questions out. But um, so you mentioned being kind of immunocompromised yeah. to a certain degree. And obviously we're living in a pandemic and we're not, you know, we haven't just entered this pandemic. It's been several years now. And so I'm curious what your experience has been with COVID. Um, So I actually got COVID at the very beginning, like February 2020. Um, I was at the Philadelphia Flower Show, which is where I think I contracted it before it even like was you know, a thing in Philly, we didn't have testing centers or anything. And so all of us were like, all of us being like my parents, my doctor, um, everyone was like kind of holding their breath and crossing their fingers to see what would happen. Um, And it took me four weeks, but my body was able to fight it off. Um, I think it was mostly just my T cells because my B cells are pretty non-existent. Um, And um, a weird thing about being immunocompromised in the way I am was after a transplant, like a bone marrow transplant or a stem cell transplant, your bone marrow is completely wiped out. Like it gets replaced completely with someone um, else's, but it's also, it's kind of like comparing it to a newborn's bone marrow where there's just um, like no immunity to anything. Like everything's kind of still in development. And there's like this period of nine months where you can't like see anyone um, after your transplant, you're like kept in this bubble. So you can like um, recover and, you know, develop some immunity before you go out into the world. And that never really happened for me, um, in terms of my antibodies and everything. They just don't exist. Um, I know having that baseline anxiety about, uh, being immunocompromised and, um, like knowing I needed something extra, like to like help me get over a cold that like a regular person could just fight off. And so, yeah, I wasn't able to get revaccinated. That's where I was going with it. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, so most people get revaccinated, like a newborn would, or like in your infancy, you get all these vaccines. Um, you would get those after your transplant. I wasn't able to get those because a lot of them are alive. And since I don't have any mechanism to fight those off, then they were just like, don't get those. And so um, it was interesting because I can get dead vaccines. So like the mm-hmm. killed ones. So like the flu, COVID were good. Um, so I could get those, but we really don't know what kind of effect they have on me. So that's what was kind of interesting to think about. Like, um, luckily the donors who donate my immunoglobulin, which is what I infuse in myself every week, um, they probably have COVID antibodies, so I'm probably protected, yeah. but yeah, it's, it's very weird. <laughs> yeah, no, I couldn't. I bet. Um, I just want to clarify again. (laughs) Two med students, you know, you can get kind of lost. But um, just to clarify with vaccinations, um, there's live um, and then there's dead. And so basically with some vaccinations, you can actually like insert, you know, the vaccination is really just like the live organism. And so obviously the concern there with someone who might be immunocompromised is if you're actually giving them the virus, then their body can't fight it Mm -hmm. the way that – someone who is not immunocompromised could do, right? But if you're giving them the dead organism, right. that's obviously not a concern because they're, yeah. So I don't know if that was clear already to people, but just wanted to clarify. Um, so one last question, and this is what I, what I ask everybody, is kind of, you know, we're wrapping up this podcast. Is there anything that you want to say that we didn't cover or takeaways you want people to leave with, with kind of your story? Um, that is and you're totally allowed to question. Yeah, if, if there's nothing, that's really yeah. fine. But I guess I think, um, like, yeah, this is this is again probably a little cliche, but don't judge a book by its cover. I mean, everyone, you don't really know um, what someone has gone through. I guess until um, you do, and so I think 
with someone who has like chronic illnesses and like invisible illnesses, I guess, um, it's, uh, it sometimes is like hard to explain to people and, um, make people understand. So I think just like meeting people where they're at and trying to be as empathetic as you can, um, and just understanding that everyone's human and they have their own things going on. Um, and also, I guess, specifically with pediatric cancer, I think we definitely could do a lot more with mental health and um, kind of explaining that, you know, a lot of this stuff that's happening to you might be something that you have to live with and deal with um, for a long time. And it's not just going to, you know, you finish treatment and you go back into life and that's it. Like, that's not really how it works. There's this, you know, um, processing and healing that needs to be done and, um yeah, and, like, learning how to manage, you know, whatever um, you took from cancer because I think it, it kind of stays with you forever. Like, no matter if you don't have any long-term side effects or if you do, like, it's just kind of a part of yeah. who you are. And um, at least that's how I, I feel about it with my case. And, yeah, I think um, there we could do a lot better in terms of, like, supporting those pediatric cancer survivors. So that's yeah. something I'm interested in working on myself. Yeah, um, no, hopefully. I think that's – an incredible takeaway and it's something I've never really thought about is the kind of need I guess there for um, emphasizing mental health among the pediatric population so thank you mm -hmm. so much for talking about that yeah. and before I finally wrap this up I just wanted to add to this kind of basket of compliments I had for you earlier <laughs> I think it's fabulous that not only have you kind of come so far you know since your initial diagnosis of cancer in terms of like um, you know being a student and, and you know being able to you know, kind of walk around healthy for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, you're obviously full of insight. And, you know, the earlier point you were making about making meaning out of your trauma, I think mm -hmm. is so incredibly powerful. And I mm -hmm. think that can resonate with a lot of people, um, even if they haven't had cancer, right? Yeah. Just any sort of traumatic experience. I think for that sure. is so, so powerful. Um, and I also <laughs> want to say that I love that you took your Make-A-Wish and went to Dubai. I think that is so <laughs> fun. You know, Disney World, mainstream. You Overrated. know what I mean? <laughs> Overrated, exactly. Go international. Yeah. Go to Dubai. I think that's so fun. Um, okay, well, that is all we have for today. Um, thank you so much, Farah, for talking with me, and thank you, audience, for tuning in to another episode of When We Had Cancer. <laughs>